listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Today I asked um, two of the greatest teachers I know, <laughs> what should the topic be for tonight's Dharma talk? And I was, as usual, I was, I was goaded into making sure I explored the topic of love. love. <laughs> Thank you, Sensei. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I immediately thought, oh man, that's just about the best topic there is. And I was reminded of three individuals that, um, and these are homework assignments for the rest of your life. If you haven't um, kind of dropped in to, first of all, you have to read, got to read Rumi. And if you haven't, give him a try. He's awesome. And you have to read Pablo Neruda. And if you haven't given Pablo a try, he's awesome. And then recently I was reminded of a book I, I read in a philosophy class. Um, it was a contemporary European intellectual history talking about Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Now, if you're not familiar with Frankl, he, uh, he wrote some of the most amazing stuff while in the midst of the concentration camp experience. And there's this one passage I was reminded of uh, where he is talking about, you know, even how he and this other guy, they're marching through the snow and they're slipping and sliding all over the place and they're freezing and they're wondering if they're going to be able to keep their feet because they're so cold and frostbitten and so forth. And he said, I kept thinking of my wife's smile. And he said it was brighter than the sun. Kept me warm the whole you know, and you can start getting into prose like that in the midst of great pain. Now you're talking about something that's pretty huge. And um, I also think um, one of my favorite, he, he certainly wasn't known for writing about love, but Ludwig Wittgenstein gets to the end of his philosophical, you know, the Tractatus Logicus, maybe the greatest thing ever written in the 20th century in terms of mind-blowing stuff. Um, and he basically says, you know what, there, there's some things you just can't put words to. And he obliquely references then later on in his life, just before his death, I guess it was in 1950 or so, where he starts saying it's, it's about love and being loved. If you can get there, man, you've hit it. And having said that, I don't know that I'm even the slightest authority on it at all. I, I am constantly mystified by this amazing experience of love. Whether it's uh, the love I received growing up, which is pretty profound, not only um, you know, from a very significant person in the room. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Mom. Um, thank you. I don't know if I ever told you this outright, but thank you so much for not practicing birth control. <laughs> Just, thank you, thank you. Don't worry, I'll edit that out. I'll, uh, 
but, the, but also from the community. <laughs> Oddly, there are many people in this room who have known me since I was probably about your age, Kate, about 10 or so. Uh, so community, family, and then the love I feel clearly for, for my daughters. Um, all the relationships, you know, that I've had. Um, and I still feel like I'm just, just getting used to it. <laughs> like, it's always surprising me. It's always surprising how much more there is. It's always surprising me that, that um, uh, it never stops. And I think it's very important to, to note there are, there are two very significant shifts that, that we can observe in love. One of them is the egoic version. And the egoic version is usually transactional. You know, this for that. If you give me this, I'll give you that, you know. Transactional, which can be a, a deep egoic negotiation rather than kind of this explosive opening that love offers each and every one of us in every moment. Um, I think it's, it's, it's important to recognize, however, that, that the small love, which can be transactional and tends to die on its own in, in some way, shape, and form, can still also be informed by a much bigger love, which doesn't involve ego, doesn't involve a give and take, it's just here. It's generous. It's always available. And when that can inform small love, when big love like that can inform small love, man, now we're into something pretty amazing. Now keep in mind, this is coming from somebody, you know, who's had several love relationships, and they have ended, had a marriage, 10-year marriage, that ended. I've had relationships since the marriage ended, and they have ended. Happen to be in a nice one now. We'll see where it goes. But I think for any of us to really explore this idea of love, for us to look at it in those two terms, Small love and big love. And big love can inform small love, always. Always. And the minute we can kind of let that through is the minute our small love begins to shift and morph into something that tends to be a little bit more stable, tends to be a little bit more forgiving, tends to be a little bit more generous, tends to be a little bit more clear about boundary. I know that may sound funny, but boundary is absolutely imperative, actually, in this practice. If you think about it, we talk about the, you know, the effulgent emptiness where all things kind of merge and flow and so forth. And yet, what does every single teaching, whether it's Hindu, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Jewish faith, Islam, or excuse me, uh, Judaism, or Buddhism, they all have a very, very significant core teaching, which is, yeah, despite the fact it's all infinite, we also have some rules. We have some commandments. We have some precepts. And they all center around the idea of not doing harm. 
So love is the ultimate expression of not doing harm. And I think for us to be able to kind of dance in that space with each other uh, becomes informative. It also leads us down a path towards a life that's built upon generosity as opposed to negotiation. Negotiations tend to, um, tend to oftentimes lead us into a place of potential uh, collapse. So, to explore this in terms of the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha's teachings, um, looking at this idea that everything is temporary, including our partnerships, including our, our, our relationships all the way around, they're all temporary. They will end at some point. Everything also is interdependent. Everything. Nothing exists in isolation. Nothing. Nothing exists in isolation. Everything depends on everything else. And when we get to that point where we can kind of begin to see that and we have a, a sitting practice or a stillness practice that kind of allows us to settle down and kind of stabilize, what we start recognizing is that everything, everything is spirit in action. Everything is God dancing through herself or himself all over. That is the that is the infinite. And that's what this that's what this teaching points us. And opening ourselves to that kind of awareness uh, is actually what what codes in in our experience for opening. That's what allows for us to kind of meet this uh, world with generosity because we no longer feel like we're coming at the world from a place of lack, but rather coming at the world from a place of abundance. We have all that we need. Let's just be generous to each other and to ourselves in that process and watch what happens. But do not take my word for it. I don't know, Jack. <laughs> I really don't. This is just a teaching that uh, people have been kind of pointing out for about 3,000 years. Work for them. I thought it was pretty cool. You might, might not. Take it or leave it. That's okay. I will not be checking up on you. <laughs> um, but the idea that we could love more, I think, becomes something quite enriching and quite powerful. <clears throat> so when we sit tonight, just rest. Be loving to yourself. Give yourself a break. Start there. And if that's too hard for you to do, allow yourself to kind of rest your mind on someone who deserves a little bit of your attention, a little bit of your love. You don't have to tell them. Just be with them a little bit. Be still with that idea, with that mental construct. And see if you can recognize how valuable they have been 
and continue to be, whether they are living or not. Recognize that that relationship is temporary. Recognize that it also is interdependent. Your good feelings about it actually inspire that relationship. And then also recognize that it's relationships, when they're oriented around love, are the infinite's way of kind of winking at us. Slight flirtation. Be there for that dance. Just for 35 minutes if you want. If you want to end it, you can after that. Ready to give it a shot? So tonight as we sit, just allow for yourself to be as best you can in this body, in this very experience, in this room with your spiritual friends, with a teaching that we can use to fashion a life Be generous with yourself. Be generous with those around you. And let the fact that all is fleeting, that all is interdependent, and that all is infused by the infinite, let that inspire greatness in each of us. And let that greatness be a reflection of great kindness. And most importantly, of great love.
<laughs> I didn't mean to do that. I promise. Can't forget. Good. Wanted to read read you something that was written in around uh, around the year six hundred, the seventh century writing. Um, it's from a bit of scripture called The Mind of Absolute Trust. Now, um, I think when you go into Chinese Buddhism or Chan Buddhism, uh, you get some really, really, in my view, my, in my humble opinion, some really cool stuff that's so basic, so straightforward. It's just, you know, right there. So I'll just read you a little bit here that um, I, I found interesting. It says, The Great Way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Sound familiar? No? I didn't think so. Okay, yeah. The great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion, and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hair breadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind. Not grasping the deeper meaning, you just trouble your mind's serenity. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. But because you select and reject, you can't perceive its true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of things, and all errors will disappear by themselves. Now, the sutra goes on here, uh, and I'm not going to read, read all of it, but uh, I, think that, I think that for us to attach to what the sutra says gets us into trouble as well. Okay? Is there good and evil in the world? Well, to every ego there is. Egos define what is good and what is evil and what they want to be part of and what they want to reject and what they want more of and what they want to avoid. That's, that's what an ego does. Because an ego, or the I sense, the I wants to defend against the them. That's its job. So it sets up, and there's all this biological apparatus that helps it make these discernments and decisions. And once it starts setting up, I want more of that, I want less of that, now we're in the fundamental delusion of being human. Now, with that said, it's not such a bad thing. I mean, delusion isn't just delusion, okay? And the delusion is that there is, in fact, a separation. When, in fact, the difference between this rug and that glass right there is organization and energy. That's it. If we were to rip it apart just in terms of physics, we are mostly space. And the matter is organized differently, and the energetic componentry of that experience of each and every one of those organizations differs substantially. So, for us to make no distinctions, gets us lost. 
Similarly, the other side of that coin is when we make too many distinctions, we get lost. When, as the first line says, our preferences run amok, they become attachments. <coughs> and attachments, the clinging, is the source to all suffering. Oh, what's the trick here? Don't cling to anything. And if you don't cling to anything, you can still be dancing with stuff. Have you ever tried to dance with somebody who's clinging to you? Is there just me and Barbara? Okay. I heard her giggle, so I figured, slight chortle from this side of the room, I figured, you know what I'm talking about. Seriously, just consider this. The most beautiful dance is not, it's not clinging. You remember those marathon I remember looking in Life Magazine once and seeing um, uh, marathon dancing. And then I thought to myself, this is the most idiotic thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, this guy, just like, you know, this woman like carrying him like, yeah, okay, this is somehow cool, you know? And then, then they'd switch, switch roles so they could, they could sleep, I don't know. To me, it seemed ridiculous, but that's the kind of ridicularity that um, we can run into. A dance at that level isn't much of a dance. It's kind of um, it's a it's kind of uh, painful. On the other hand, I think I've shared this with the group before. That one of the most beautiful things I ever saw in my life was uh, a tango being done on the streets in Central America. When it was spontaneous and it was with a with a an accordion that couldn't play all the notes, and so the guy would do it anyway, dance around it, and made it just sound so, so sexy. You know? When he would push, she gave just the right amount of resistance, and the spin was absolutely gorgeous, and pulls her right back. She was right there with him. That was gorgeous, because it wasn't about clinging, it was about dancing. And that's kind of where we can be when there aren't preferences. Now imagine if it takes leadership and following and shifts in energy for it to really begin to reflect something amazing. Speaking of dancing. And I can apply that same exact rationale to living. Living with things, living with stuff, living in the world of separation, but learning to dance with it as opposed to fighting against it to try to wake up or being embedded in it so much so that we can't get a clear sense of what it means to be free. So this practice, this teaching, kind of pushes us in this direction should we want to take the steps. And again, the cool thing, from my perspective, the, the cool thing uh, as uh, an egoically bound college student who first, you know, 30 some odd years ago got turned on to this, um, it was about the practitioner doing the work, doing the lifting, as opposed to uh, someone saving. I found that to be an easier, an easier buy so to speak, or an easier sell, depending on how you look at it. This isn't to take anything away from Christianity, okay? 
I am, after all, sitting underneath a 60-pound wooden cross <laughs> that could at any moment. We talked about this. What a way to go. <laughs> what would the newspapers say? Buddhist killed by a cross. In a suburb. Anyway. What are we talking about? <laughs> Dancing, yes, dancing. <laughs> anyway, I just think it's worthy of our consideration. It's worthy of our consideration to, uh, um, how are you dancing? How's your dancing going? You know, and if we can look at Infinite Smile Sangha as a place to kind of uh, maybe get a few new moves, you know, uh, maybe practice, practice with each other. Uh, Certainly practice with me. This is, after all, a dance. Uh, this is a relationship where I push, you know? Where are you? And I'm pushing, right? Um, since it comes from words, it is bound. Uh, I always try to hit at three levels. I try to hit, uh, for someone who has never had any experience, I always try to like have something there and someone who's kind of in between has something there and somebody who is, you know, been doing this a while, you know, things that have been helpful to me, especially recently. Um, but it's all a dance. And being able to do it well with each other means you get resistance and you get pulled at just the right moments and that's when, that's when the, the spin happens. And the same, the same math that goes with that spin is the same math in our, the double helix of our DNA, it's the same math in the, uh, the spirals of uh, this and other, uh, you know, um, galaxy. So this isn't necessarily the the easiest thing in the world, and I think most of us come at this experience of of living, especially especially twenty first century living. <laughs> You know, with all of our psychological baggage, believing that we are too much or too little, um, or uh, the idea that that we come from life from a, a you know sense of excess, we're too much. People can't handle me. Uh, can't handle myself. It's too much. Um, We're constantly in a place of negotiation, like I spoke of in the, uh, the introductory talk, comparing ourselves. This is the, the suburban disease comparison. Uh, and I think that there are those, those people who can get on the other side of that and live pretty effectively and so forth. They don't get caught by it. Um, I know I, for instance, am looking very, very carefully at how my daughters move through their experience in school, and how um, the older one especially is getting a sense of comparison. You know, how the hell am I going to negotiate this? Is what's going on in my head? How am I going to help her walk through this without getting tagged inappropriately by, well, they're doing this, so why can't I? You know, and I know I'm going to have to go through some of that. Actually, no, I won't, because they're perfect. They're precious <laughs> angels. <laughs> I 
think when we live from a place of too much, we're always rejecting something. Or we somehow are always feeling rejected. If we flip that, and we're living from a place of lack, we almost always feel like there's something needed. Something else is needed. Great egoic disease. You know? Ah. And we're still in a place of comparison. But if something's needed, this leads us into this place of preference. And preferences, if you follow your preferences, they will take you invariably right into your attachment. So the next time you find a preference come up, this is a very beautiful thing for practice. They're not bad. And they're not something we, never, we want to like eradicate. I want to eradicate all preferences. If that were the case, if, or rather, if you do that, I, I, I would hazard a guess that you would probably become swiftly the most boring person at the dinner party. Mm-hmm. Preferences are fine. It's the extent to which we're bound to them or how much they hook us. This makes sense? It's not that the preference is there. It's that the preference really pulls at us. If it really pulls at us, it's not just a preference, it's an attachment. We want to watch for that. To give you an example, um, the girls have been asking me a great deal about stars. I pointed out recently, there's, I don't know if you guys saw this two weeks ago, there was this gibbous moon, perfect toenail, and directly underneath it was Venus. And so I'm showing there on my iPad, I have this, uh, this app that allows you to point it up at the sky and it'll point out constellations and it'll point out the, it's really cool. So I'm looking at it and going, okay, see that's Venus. And they're going, Dad, 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 that's the iPad. Can, can we like look, do we have a telescope? And so immediately I'm, I'm like going, okay, here's my excuse. Last year they wanted to learn how to play video games and I got an Xbox. This year it's a telescope, <laughs> but let's see if we can do And I suddenly have become an expert in telescope technology over the last two weeks. And I've been looking on Amazon, I've been looking at various places where can I actually see one, what kind of aperture, how big, you know, full on preference that's turned into this craving for a really kick-ass telescope. All right? May not happen. And the whole time, it's just this incredible exercise in watching it pull me. Now, we're not talking about thousands of dollars worth of equipment. We're talking about something, comparatively speaking, kind of small. But I think about it before I go to bed sometimes. All right? What a fun thing to practice with, you know? Continually kind of looking, oh, there you go, Mike. Oh, a little bit of cling in there, huh? Let's see if we can dance a little bit better with that telescope, you know? I'll keep you all informed if I go after one of these things. Um, at this point, probably not. But um, still, it's just been a very interesting, interesting little thing. We, uh, uh, similarly, one of the great things that we practice in in, uh, in the household when the three of us are together, the, the girls and, and, and I are together, is being on time. 
Um, I'm not going to embarrass them here. One of them is really good at being on time. The other one, not so much. The other one is really good about making sure there are a pair of socks and a pair of underpants for every day we're with Dad. The other one, not so much. One of them is pretty directed, pretty focused. Uh, I need to do my reading now. The other one, absolutely, absolutely in, in, in her own world. How do I, I mean, I clearly relate to that first energy, just because that's the way I kind of moved. So, how do I do that? How do I dance with that? And I'm just, I'm making this personal for no other reason than to, just to let you know that just because I sit up here doesn't mean that life doesn't still get thrown at me, that I don't still work, work with what uh, 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 Seng San was talking about here. Uh, logos many years ago. All right? Um, it's ongoing. This is a, there's no final, final here. There's no omega point in this practice. It keeps going. I will say this. Stuff sticks a lot less the more you do this. Some of you may have kind of already come to that position. Just doesn't stick. Boy, does stuff get more fun. We can feel stuff a little bit more deeply, but it doesn't matter as much. Doesn't mean the tragedy doesn't hit. Of course it hits. But our relationship to it, the gears shift a little bit. We're no longer bound by this sense of lack. I need a telescope. No, you don't. Everything would be fine if I just had that telescope. <laughs> Do you remember in um, The Jerk, Steve Martin? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a comment on consumerism, capitalism. There's some deep stuff going on in that film, and I think we've talked about this before. As silly as it is, there's some, I mean, he, that guy knows what he's doing in terms of writing. And there's a scene at the end where he's just going through all I need. And he starts talking about all I need, uh, and starts walking through this, he's, he's developed this huge, giant empire uh, because of a product that he, he sold. All I need is this paddle game, and he has like a paddle game, starts getting, and this chair, and that, that's all I need, and this lamp. <laughs> and he starts walking through, <laughs> he's just picking up random stuff. It, it's absolutely just this hilarious scene that there's almost a sadness to it because it's the way we live. And then finally, <laughs> towards the end, he goes, oh, but all I really need is this thermos. You know, bizarre. But he gets to this point of, actually, I'm not lacking anything. Except this thermos. <clears throat> how about if we could recognize how complete we actually are even without the thermos, you know? That we don't really need much more than what we already have. I think Sinead O'Connor, the uh, unstable, inherently unstable Irish songstress, who I think has done some amazing stuff musically, had this title for this uh, album, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I Do Not Want What I Have Not Got. Oh, man. How cool would that be? 
At that point, there's no way you could actually fear because nothing could be taken from you. If nothing can be taken from you, there can be no loss. And the only reason why fear ever arises is because there's the perception that something can be taken, that we somehow possess. Instead, what this teaching points us is that actually we're not in possession of anything permanently. And so we develop a certain grace and ease around that letting go again and again and again. So as we kind of uh, wrap things up here, I think that just the idea for each of us to look very, very carefully at how it is that we're caught. If we can look very, very carefully at, at how it is that we're getting reminders of preferences that can guide us right into the heart of the, of the practice. No matter where we are, no matter if we're, we're super advanced, we've been doing this for years and years and years, or we're just starting out, where are you clinging? Recognize that you don't have to come at life from a place of lack, nor that you're too much. You're just fine. You're just fine as you are. You get to become your own lab, your own laboratory. You get to become your own experiment. You get to test the stuff that I'm talking about and that other teachers are talking about and what the sages have written about. Test it out. Try it. See where it takes you. And see if this actually leads then to a felt sense of deeper openness, deeper joy. A joy that actually feels like love. So that we are actually agents, agents of love for self and other. Continually generous, continually meeting the experience with openness and living from that place. Should anyone wish to wish to play? Dance? Anybody want to dance? Yeah. Preferences. Yeah. Preferences. So preferences for you, the nomenclature at least, is around computing? Yeah, that's what I'm Right. So what I would say is my, the kind of preferences that I'm talking about are much more practical. I mean, I, get, it, I, I know so little about coding. I'm really bad at it. But just in terms of um, uh, a, a preference is a lean into one thing or another. Exactly. So for instance, there, everyone in this room knows that my preference is chocolate above 60%. Okay, so I am, that's chocolate. If white chocolate is not chocolate to me. That's my preference. Milk chocolate, mm, kind of. So for me, dark chocolate, that's my preference. 
And if I cling to that, only want the dark chocolate, then what happens is I suffer when someone gives me what is a shitty example. <laughs> well, but you get the idea. I mean, because uh, <clears throat> I will. I got to tell you, I will eat white chocolate. I will, and I will. Yeah, I know. I'm admitting it, and I will also eat milk chocolate. I just prefer the dark chocolate because that's real. The other stuff, mm. we can have that debate. Why well, the same preference for sugar? <laughs> okay. uh, but so where, where I'm going with this is then in life we tend to we are. Uh, I had I had someone uh, say we are preference making machines. You know we're always looking we're always preferring one thing over another when we're especially when we're really really bound kind of. You got it. Right, and, and sometimes when you do, and the cool thing is, when you're wise enough to know that I don't even have a choice in this situation, and you can kind of just give in to that. I was gonna be late today for a meal. It's a chocolate, usually, I mean, if it's all there is, man, you have no choice, <laughs> just enjoy. Even if it's white chocolate, which is not chocolate, but anyway. You ever been in a traffic jam? Okay. Most of our preferences is that we're not in that. But do we get worked up over it? That's where it gets funny. Like if we're in a, so I was in LA a few weeks back. And it was the funniest thing. The 405 is it's still the greatest nightmare in the Western United States. Trying to get anywhere in Los Angeles if you gotta get on the 405. Made worse, so there are a couple others that are even worse. But still, the 405 just cracked me because I had to use it. And here I am sitting on this thing. I've got the guy next to me in one of the most beautiful automobiles I've ever seen. And I know it cost well over $300,000. And he, he, you could tell he was, um, there was a certain celebratory aspect to the way he dressed. <laughs> he liked showing, uh, it, it just, the, the vibe was showing off, okay? And I guess if you have a car like that, I mean, you know, whatever, right? It's fine. But what was cracking me up, and I was doing everything I could not to like really like stare. And the, the, uh, the woman I was with, she she's watching. She's picking up on the same thing. He's pounding on his his uh, steering wheel, raising these small fists to the universe that he's in a traffic jam. And you can, you, can, you can hear him. God damn traffic! This is bullshit! You know, just, and I kind of just like, how useless that energy. Poor guy. You know, you, you, there was something, you just kind of want to, oh, it's okay, buddy. But you know what? You may feel sad right now, but we're gonna do a, we're gonna pull through together. Think of your wife's smile. Like Viktor Frankl. He had it, you know, not to go all relative on you, pal, but you know, this is kind of the stuff I had going on in my head. I don't think that would have worked. I don't think it would have mitigated any of his feelings at all. He probably would have hit me. But that's the kind of, you know, we start to see ourselves in others. There would have been a time where I could have very easily been in that type of a situation. I'm not uh, in this moment, you know? Maybe I'll get there again, but it, I think in general, this 
this practice tends to remind us of life's really important things. We don't get caught so much by pulled this way, you know, fish hook by preference. That's a long way of answering your question. Sorry, but hopeful. Now carry it into computing. Let's see what that yeah, yeah. Well, cool. So you can reauthor that a little bit, broaden that definition. Yeah. Thanks. That's actually quite nice. And actually, if you come up with, uh, you know, I mean, you might bust through here and, and start um, figuring out how to code consciousness, and then that's going to be a cool thing. You know, just uh, you're going to be able if you can figure this one out. Preferences in terms of uh, computer code, you might be able to develop. Not only artificial intelligence, but artificial consciousness might be fun. I'm making that. You're a fix-it guy, okay. I, I will share this with you. We had a guy, um, some of you might, might remember, uh, Syriac. He's, uh, he's from Africa. He sat with us at a couple of retreats a couple of years back, and he, he and his now wife, uh, uh, I guess, got married what, five or six years ago. But anyway... He, he's desperate to be, he's all artificial intelligence. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, I mean, his skin is so black, it's almost purple. And he's got this beautiful French-African accent. Um, and he was saying, you know, Michael, I, I, there's got to be a way to code for consciousness. Like, knock yourself out, we'll make a great game. <laughs> So let's keep our fingers crossed that you can, you can do that. That'd be wonderful. We could code for consciousness.